0: Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, Emotional Intelligence, or EI, is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course. A 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity. Become a stellar leader and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.keystepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration.
1: Have you ever felt mad about something you thought was unfair, and what happened? So, when we were playing four square at recess school, uh, my friend, he was making unfair rules about other kids to not do the rules that other kids were doing, and that kind of felt unfair because they could literally just only drop the ball because that's what he said, Mm -hmm. and... All of us could do, like, cherry bombs, but only he could do, like, dropping the ball, so that would be really unfair. And how did
2: it make you feel inside?
1: I'm kind of mad and sad for, like, the person who could only do, like, dropping a ball. Right. Yeah. What happened? Were other kids mad? Yeah. Yeah, most of the people that were playing foursquare were angry. So what did you do? I just went to the different foursquare. Awesome. Okay, thank you. You're welcome.
0: I'm Daniel Goldman. And I'm Hanuman Goldman.
3: You're listening to First Person Plural Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. Today, we're talking about constructive anger reacting negatively to injustice or suffering can motivate us to work with others to make the world a better place. Just as empathy has its downsides, negative emotions like anger can have upsides. Staying cool in a crisis might bring some benefits, but sometimes we must let ourselves get heated in order to make positive change. In emotional intelligence, we often talk about emotional balance, which is the ability to keep your disruptive emotions and impulses in check to maintain your effectiveness under stressful or even hostile conditions. It means that you recognize disruptive emotions, emotions that get in the way, like high anxiety, intense fear, or quick anger, and you find ways to manage your emotions and impulses. But there's a usefulness in feeling strong emotions, such as anger, when we experience injustice. Anger can give you the energy to stay focused and motivated to address a particular goal. When the Dalai Lama turned 80, I was honored to be asked to write a book for him that articulates his vision for the world. And one thing that startled me was finding out that he's really at heart a social activist. He gets really incensed about uh, injustice, social injustice. Uh, about uh, you know us and them biases about the widening gap between rich and poor Uh, and he sees a role for anger and that really surprised me because in buddhism generally anger is often seen as something you want to suppress but he didn't say that at all he said you know anger can be constructive if it's well guided you can use the focus that anger gives you you can use the energy that it gives you. You can use the persistence that anger gives you. Just put aside the hatred. Moral outrage can drive positive action, he said. And uh, he uh, he told me once about uh, being uh, talking to a group of social workers who were going on strike to protest how very poor people were being treated in a city in India and he said If I weren't the Dalai Lama, I'd be right there with you on the picket line. He's an activist. And uh, I, however, I think that it's useful to experience anger and then take the gift of anger on with you in how you react to what's making you angry. And that's what he calls constructive anger, where you transmute the anger into energy, into focus, into clarity, into purpose and pursue a goal which is effective in righting the wrong that made you so angry in the first place.
0: I love that you were talking about the clarity that anger offers because clarity is a a big piece of anger for me if I have the presence of mind to listen to it in the right way because anger uh, makes things very simple, right? It's things often become uh, black or white. It's, it's either this right. or that. And uh, especially when we feel we've been wronged, which I guess anger uh, often is. It's not that you can't get angry because anger is just information. It's just, if we can listen to it, if we can hear it, it's telling us how, what we care about and what's important to us and maybe that our needs aren't being met. But it, so I, I wonder... Dan, if you could talk about, from an emotional intelligence perspective, if you could break down the emotional process of feeling something and then using that feeling as motivation.
3: You know, emotions are the brain's way of making us pay attention, have an instant way to react. And in early human history and evolution, that was a survival strategy. And it worked apparently, at least for our ancestors. We don't know about the ones that didn't survive. But anyway, we have this hair trigger in our brain, uh, which makes us angry in an instant. All emotions come to us unbidden. We don't ask for them usually. They just, all of a sudden we find we're sad, we're anxious, we're angry. Once you have the feeling, once you're the question is what do you do? That's the choice point. You didn't choose to be angry, but now you find you're angry and you can either act on it impulsively or not. In fact, one definition of maturity is widening the gap between your initial emotion and how you react, that emotional impulse and the reaction. And with anger, uh, I think that not acting on the first impulse is a good idea. I was recently attacked in an article, a very high profile venue, and it made me really mad because it wasn't justified as far as I thought, as far as I could see. So uh, I took the anger and there was a mix. There were other feelings, anxiety, shame, fear, you know, this whole mix of unpleasant feeling. And I just sat with it. I'm a meditator and I let it be. I try to experience all of it and the thoughts, you know, like I've got to defend myself. I've got a counterattack. Those were the impulses that came with the feelings. I didn't act on any of it. And in fact, the longer I sat with the feelings and the thoughts, the less powerful they became. And I came out of that with an interesting clarity about what to do, which was to take a good look at what I've written about emotional intelligence and what people are doing with it and try to separate what's good what's bad, what's a good use, what's a misuse, uh, what's really ugly, what's admirable. In other words, sort out uh, the entire thing. And that was stimulated by what I took to be a very unfair attack on me and the concept. But my final response came with clarity, with energy, with motivation, with focus.
0: That's beautiful. It's a beautiful example of feeling very strong feelings and taking the time to experience them and, and really allow them to unfold inside of you without unfolding outside of you. And at the same time, I feel like it's really important to recognize that it's really rare that we have the capacity, first of all, the, the practice to know that that's a possibility. And second the conditions to be able to take the time to reflect in our response, or the habit of doing that. And I think in those conditions, there's a lot of privilege that it's important for us to just recognize because so many of the people in the world don't have the privileged conditions to take a moment with anger
3: I'm Daniel Goleman, and I'm here with Lama Rod Owens, who's a Buddhist minister, author, activist, yoga instructor, and authorized Lama, or Buddhist teacher, in the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism. His book, Love and Rage, The Path to Liberation Through Anger, came out to critical acclaim last year. So I think um, it it would be helpful for our listeners if you explain who you are, your various Mm -hmm. identities. Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Um, Well, I identify as black and queer. It's just gender. Um, I'm a southerner. Um, I'm also fat-identified. Um, mixed class, um, very radical leaning, radical minded, um, and yeah, <laughs> and, and I love having a good time, but at the same time, I also love serious work. Uh-huh. Um, so that creates, um, sometimes extremism <laughs> in uh-huh. what I do, but I think it it's also my experience of myself has been being very like very live and in color. If that makes sense. Like totally. I am definitely showing up very strongly in the world. Even when I think that I'm not showing up, I've been told that I am showing up. You know, and so all those identity locations are so uh-huh. important for me, you know, and of course I of course, I did mention that I'm also a Dharma teacher, a Buddhist teacher. Um, and that makes it even more interesting as well. <laughs> well
3: and, and that, I think, is the pivot point of your book. But yes. we'll get to that. Yep. <laughs> so uh, one of the things I liked was right at the beginning, you, you said, uh, you know, this is not a bypass. Mm-hmm. We're going to dive right into it. Right. And why do you think that's so important?
4: Yeah, I think so many people are used to kind of kind of stepping around anger in general even really just any strong emotion but definitely anger you know and and i want it to to really say very clearly that we're going to go into the anger and we're going to get into the roots of anger which you know Again, which we perpetually avoid because many people really don't believe they have the capacity to actually be in a relationship to the anger. They think they have to kind of turn directions when they see the anger and do something else. Kind of just protect ourselves. Yeah, yeah, protect yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. I know. Mm
3: -hmm. Yep. So, but let's get right into it. You talk about anger and hurt and woundedness. Yeah. -hmm. Can you explain? Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah,
4: yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, it's, you know, I often see anger as a secondary emotion, the the primary emotion being the woundedness, the hurt. Mm -hmm. Like, I get hurt. Mm -hmm. Like, something happens and I feel hurt, and I want to take care of myself, but I don't know how to do that. And so there's a tension that arises. The tension is what feeds into this experience of anger. Um, but I believe that what people are really trying to say when they say I'm angry, I think they're actually trying to say I'm hurt and don't know how to do that. And so the anger and the energy of anger is much more accessible than the hurts. The anger, you know, anger, this energy is it's really is strong, it's dynamic, you know, but the energy of woundedness is very, it can feel depleting, it can feel depressive. Right. And we don't want to sink into that, you know, but we want to rise in the anger.
3: So you also talk about having been conditioned to see your anger as dangerous. Yes. Burying it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, for me growing up as a black male in the South, I learned very early and saw very clearly that it was quite dangerous for me to to express anger I saw what the discipline was. I saw what the retaliation looked like, you know, even in school, right? Like I couldn't be angry because that was always read into as being, me being, you know, hardheaded or or having behavior issues. When in fact, I was just angry, like any other kid (laughs) is, is angry, you know, but as I got older, actually, I began to, to understand that like it was even more dangerous like i didn't i didn't have the space to be angry you
3: you talk about how anger kind of suppressed or turned inward can become depression yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you also make it really clear about needing a relationship with the hurt under yeah, anger.
4: yeah.
3: why yeah. is that how is
4: that? yeah well because that's the truth of things like i am experiencing hurt I need to be in a relationship to the hurt in order to figure out how to take care of that hurt. And if I don't take care of the hurt, I won't ever be in a really effective spacious relationship with the energy of anger.
3: So here's here's something that I found a little confusing, maybe you can help me. You you talk about getting in touch with your anger and letting yourself feel the rage. Yeah. And also you have this wonderful Viktor Frankl quote right at the yeah. start of your book about expanding the space between whatever triggers the feeling and then what you do about it. Yeah. How can you, on the one hand, really experience the anger and the rage, on the other hand, not let it take you over and do something that might harm you or someone else?
4: Well, I think the, the, the key practice here is experience. I'm, I want to experience, not react. You know, and in my meditation practice, what I'm training to do is to actually disrupt the ways in which I habitually react to everything that arises in my mind. And doing so, I can turn attention to the space that's already naturally in my mind, (sighs) right? So then I begin to understand that, like, actually, maybe it's almost impossible for anger to overwhelm me when, in fact over years of practice, I can realize that my mind Uh and space in my mind is quite boundless.
3: One of the things that you talk about really powerfully is systemic violence, Mm -hmm. feeling marginalized, feeling victimized. What does that look like from your point of view?
4: Yeah, it's really uh, this deep experience of living in a social context where I feel that I can't really be myself, Uh right? You know, that I move through the world, and there are all of these these actually cultural rituals that have been enacted, you know, to prevent me huh. from experiencing freedom. Like what? You know, so like one of the these cultural rituals, you know, like being in a body where the Supreme Court has to litigate my right to do something that other people get a right to do, like I don't know, get married. Oh. <laughs> you know. Yeah are to be able to vote without being discriminated against or to be able to have a job uh, uh, and to fairly be able to say that maybe I'm being discriminated against because of an aspect of my identity.
3: So these are all systemic hurts. Yes. that understandably create
4: anger. Yeah. Well, and then, then, it's, then it's also the trauma. Then it's also transhistorical uh-huh. traumas that yeah. are passed from generation to generation. I begin to study transhistorical trauma from the perspective of holocaust survivors oh, oh nice. um so so i I have friends whose families survived work camps and death camps, you know mostly work camps, and that's where I begin to understand, oh, there's this field of study that talks about historical traumas and how they get rooted within communities and then yeah. passed from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So when I looked into my heritage, I, you know, I am descended from mostly, you know, um, African, you know, and particularly African enslaved people. And I do have some indigenous um, ancestry as well. Um, but the middle passage, right, this experience of Africans being packed onto ships and then sold to different countries, you know, the Caribbean, United States, mm-hmm. and so forth, different countries. That experience created this, this trauma, this deep hurt, this deep wounded woundedness, which was both both mental and physical. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would also argue spiritual as well. And then coming into whatever context they were being brought into being being put into systems of slavery chattel slavery to be precise and then years of racism you know yeah. and so forth has created trauma mm-hmm. you know that has been passed from generation to generation and perpetuated by systems of racism and so you know I you can look at you know the the research around epigenetics for instance, and to show sure. how one's DNA has, can be shaped by trauma.
3: In that, I mean, epigenetic research I'm familiar with shows that if a, uh, one generation is neglected or abused, mm-hmm. that that actually changes what genes are passed on yeah. and what's activated and what's not. Yeah which is uh, very powerful because it gets to the level of the body, which you emphasize, yeah. you emphasize how important it is right. to feel this in your own body. Right. Can you say something about that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I just, for me, from, you know, from my perspective, particularly in Buddhism, I, the body is important in terms of experiencing liberation, you know, because mm-hmm. I have to have a, a complete awareness of everything, mm-hmm. my whole experience. Um, but when I think about the body in, in the contemporary context, you know, maybe a more secular context, what I understand is that, you know, so many of us are disembodied, you know, ah. that we actually have no connection, no experience of the body. You know, I often say that we're such a, a, a head mind oriented culture because the mind can, can move in the past. It can move in the present, you know, but the body is always in the present, you know, and the mind can move into the future as well, uh-huh, uh-huh. but the body is always here in the present. So when we are actually bringing awareness back to the body, we're actually going to have to slow down. Right. But we're also going to have to, uh, to begin to experience the ways in which the body has absorbed pain and carries pain and carries hurts. Right. And then, and that's what I would call trauma, you know, sure. and we won't experience the kinds of, Of freedom, or happiness, or joy, until we do the work of tending to the trauma in the physical body.
3: And part of that is just tuning into your own experience of what that's like in the body.
4: Yeah, Yeah. and being as careful as possible. Absolutely.
3: So, also, I was struck that you seem to be working at multiple levels. One of them is in the body, and then the other is the emotion, and then another is society. You're a social activist, you say, right? And how has your social activism helped you or or what does it mean for you?
4: Right. You know, I, you know, I've been involved in activism and really just service in general since my early teens. And Uh I just, it was just important for me to, to be of benefit Uh somehow. Right. Uh And then of course, being in this body, being black and queer, you know, particularly, I was very sensitive to the ways in which, yeah, there are these, these, how society was set up, you know, to, to create limitations, right, Right. Um, and I wanted to do something about that, (laughs) absolutely, Uh Uh because I wanted to be happy, right, in order for me to be happy, I had to, I had to do what I could to create freedom for myself and for those like me. For me, it's been about trying to to create and secure the space for me to be my complete self. And that has taken action and uh-huh. has taken a kind of awareness where I've had to question why I'm not able to be my complete self. And then taking another step and saying, okay, what am I going to do about this?
3: So you earlier mentioned that you have also... Uh, not just black ancestry, but Native American mm-hmm.
4: ancestry. Mm-hmm.
3: How, how does indigenous spiritual practice inform your work around social justice?
4: Yeah. I mean, I in, in, connecting to my indigenous ancestors has been a newer um, kind of practice for uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. But even so, my practice has really been extremely impacted by the ways in which Indigenous practice has reconnected me to the earth, uh-huh. to the elements, mm-hmm. um, connected me to different ways of understanding community, you know, and and, and and to, and when I talk about indigeneity, I'm also talking about pre-colonial
3: uh-huh.
4: Uh-huh. ways of right. being, you know, like what right. does that look like, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm really also fortunate to be in a relationship with um, indigenous Indigenous Native folks as well. And so building practices, right, which for me, comes at this intersection between Buddhism and indigenous Uh practice, you know, Uh um, which has been part of it is so hard for me to articulate. But another part of it is just this feeling of, again, becoming more myself, right? Like, who am I, Uh if not defined by a system? you know, of, of violence and prejudice. Like, who am I outside of that? And that's what's happening. I'm figuring out who I am outside of those systems.
3: One of the things that uh, I was struck by in your book, which is so wonderful and I recommend it for everyone, uh, was how you viewed Martin Luther King. Yeah. Because here's a guy... Who many people see as a very effective activist, yeah. working mm-hmm. for social justice, and yet you saw some limits, I think, yeah. in how he did. Could you explain that? Well, was, well,
4: he was quite effective, you know, and that's—I uh. think that's an important thing. He was extremely effective. I think he was extremely gifted, but I think that we tend to overemphasize this nonviolence mm-hmm. and kind of bypass the importance of violence within his work, right? You know, the the civil rights movement was spurred, was, was galvanized primarily because people were able to turn on their TV or pick up the paper and right. see police right. or other people beating True. Black people. And I can't even watch those images anymore, you know? Oh, yeah. And so when I began to feel that, I said, oh, violence is playing a part in Dr. King's nonviolent work, nonviolent resistance.
3: Uh, you also talk about the role of violence. You talk yes. about a Jataka tale, yeah. where the Buddha uh, himself became violent, but to protect other people. Yes, exactly. So what are the boundaries
4: that yeah. you put around violence? Yeah, absolutely. And this is really interesting because this is going to be part of my next book. Oh. You know, looking at violence, um, because this has been the number one question this Mm -hmm. year for me and for a lot of folks who I've been in dialogue with. So the question that I'm working with is, like, how can I skillfully use violence to disrupt violence, Hmm. you know, Hmm. and how can I come from a place of actual authentic love when I'm doing that? And so that's the question I'm working with now. Um... <laughs> yeah, well, it raises
3: a lot of questions like, what do you really mean by violence?
4: Yeah, exactly, exactly, because I, I I really think that we, we haven't really, I mean, individually, personally, just folks in general, we don't really know exactly what we're getting at when we talk about violence, and what I'm trying to do right now is define that for myself, what is violence? Mm, right? mm. When have I been most violent? Mm, when do I choose violence? Right. You know? Um, and of course, like the basic distinction I'm making is that, yeah, there's violence that I engage in to hurt other people as much as they've hurt me. Sure. And there's violence that I choose to engage in because I'm actually trying to protect.
3: And yeah. in the Jataka tale... Yeah The Buddha is protecting the person he's violent toward from his own bad karma of having yeah. been violent. Let, let me ask you about something that the Dalai Lama talks about. He talks about a constructive anger. He says, yes. "Take the focus of anger, take the energy of anger, the persistence of anger, put the hatred aside, and yeah. then act."
4: Yeah Well, that's, that's tantric anger. Like that's, right. that's, that's yeah. the country, you know, because uh-huh. it's like, let's de the self and see yes. yes. what happens.
3: One of the things that I was very touched by was your, you say in passing, that mm-hmm. one of the things you hope to do or leave as a legacy is to lessen the burden of anger for right. future generations. Yes. And, you know, uh, so it, it's a question of your becoming an elder for a new generation of black activists and queer activists, yes. and spiritual activists. So how do you feel about that? And what does that mean to you? Is yeah. this part of your purpose or mission?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, I just, I am excited about eldership uh-huh. now, uh-huh. you know, I'm excited about, living the best life that I've been able to live and then providing support for those uh-huh. coming up, you know, behind me, um, to do that work. I, I've been so deeply held and benefited by elders and I still am, uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know, and this just, this is part of the cycle. I think for me is to, to step into eldership, you know, and, and just to point out too, that being, you know, a queer and gay man, like the 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 elders, folks older than me, that generation of gay, queer elders were mostly killed by the AIDS epidemic. Wow. They were cool. lost in the epidemic. Yeah. And so I I didn't really grow up with mm. gay or queer male mm-hmm. eldership. Mm-hmm. And so This is a conversation that I have with other queer male friends of mine Mm -hmm. who are about the same age that, like, we find ourselves getting into eldership, like, in our 40s, you know, because Uh there's there's no one else above us, right?
3: Let's talk about love, love and anger. And uh, before we get there, why do you think a book called Love and Rage resonated with so many people?
4: i I think that the pairing of those words, yeah I think people found that really interesting and maybe paradoxical in a way right, right. Um, but those were the first two words that came to mind when I started mm-hmm. thinking about this book. You know. well,
3: it's the idea that love can transform anger
4: yeah.
3: is really pivotal for you yeah, seems and yeah. the practices you offer seem to be a way to help people f- follow that path i'm a vajrayana student myself yes mm-hmm. and uh, i i can recognize the vajrayana influence but i see the how you've melded together many other streams you've really woven together yes uh, different traditions in the path you've put together which is quite original and, and uh do you find that people who come to you with a lot of anger and rage for the reasons you've described are actually able to transform with these methods?
4: Yes. You know, but, you know, as I point out in the book, these methods aren't, they're not instant. Like there's, there's yeah. these aren't instant result practices. Exactly. This, this is, you know, diligence and efforts and and long-term practice, you know, but what I do find with folks coming into these practices for the first time is that they feel as if something's working. They Uh feel as if they've Uh gotten a hook in something. And that that's, that motivates the practice quite a bit to continue.
3: You you used a phrase that really struck me, justice-based mindfulness. Yes. Because mindfulness is everywhere; it's very faddish these yeah. days, and it's very watered down, as I'm sure you recognize very often. But that helps it go large, go to scale. Yeah. It's not very deep from a right. practitioner's point of view. Yeah, exactly. But just to space mindfulness—wow, that's a powerful hook, I think.
4: Yeah. 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 And and the work in the book—that's just the beginning. Maybe we can talk about what does a mindfulness look like that's really concerned with you know with with how the world is with how people are not just focusing on me but right. how i relate to the collective and and relate to systems
3: and of course this has been a big critique of mindfulness is that it's yeah. too me focused and ignores society yeah yeah so so you're bringing the social concern into the practice right
4: right and, and you know you always have to do this work and not there's a line that we're always towing, you know, because there's always the, the tension between the Buddhist, you know, and the secular spaces and yeah, yeah. the conspiracy theory that the Buddhists are trying to take over all these spaces. And I say, like, we're not that organized to do that to begin <laughs> with. <laughs> <sorry>. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. <Yeah. laughs>
3: but you know, you also bring in other traditions, yoga. Yes. Native American. Yeah. And then you have this S.N.O.E.L.L. <laughs> See it, name it, own it, experience it, let it go, let it float. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. That's, very, that's a lot of work.
4: Yeah. And, you know, I think everyone has a different pronunciation of that. I I just called it Snow, but uh-huh. people think it's Snowell. It's <laughs> like it. Yeah. So I just say, what, call it whatever you want. Um, but yeah, I, so that method came out of working with activists. Oh. Actually, at the very beginning of me, you know, thinking about the book, I was working with a small group of activists, mm-hmm. you know, on you know, meditation and issues of justice and meditation and collaboration. And that came out of our work together, oh, okay. you know, um, and yes, it's, it's very, uh, reminiscent of, a rain, which is recognize, accept, investigate, then non-identify or nurture, depending on, you know, where you're right. coming from. Right. You no, know, but activists, particularly activists of color were like, well, we want more agency in this. Uh huh. You, know, uh-huh. you know, And so that's where the own it came from. Oh. So, looking at the whole process, we see it, we name it. That's very common, right? You know, we see that. And then owning it meant that, like, I needed to identify that this was happening in my experience. Right, right. You know, because systematic oppression, oppression yeah. creates this this um experience that we don't own anything. Like, our body is a model, our mind is a yes. And that yeah. all this is dangerous in a way you know, since we don't own it, it's we can't trust it. And so this owning it is a way for us to step back into claiming our bodies, claiming our minds. Even if we're working with something really uncomfortable, it's still happening in our experience, you know? And then we move into this kind of experiencing, okay, what does it feel like now? Now that I've owned it, I can step into it now and experience, Hmm. you know? So right there, if I could just
3: pause, this is really interesting to me because yeah. I'm fascinated by shared blind spots. Yeah. There's a blind spot about racism. Yeah. There's a blind spot about anti-gay mm-hmm. prejudice and bias. Mm-hmm. There's a blind spot. There's a huge blind spot about how the things we buy and use every day are degrading the systems of support life on the planet. Right. There's another blind spot about economic, the gap between rich and poor. Yeah. Worldwide. Mm-hmm. These are all blind spots. So you're saying go into it, mm-hmm. name it, mm-hmm. own it. Does own it imply do something about it?
4: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that. Uh-huh. Yeah. uh uh-huh. You know, and I think further incarnations of this practice will get into that, you know, as I'm working on other things. but I see but yeah, like do something like where, where's the doing, you know? Maybe it's your
3: next book, but it seems to me that those are broad categories where naming is not allowed. we are not, we don't see what we don't see. Right. Right. And if we don't see it, we can't name it. Yeah. And if we don't name it, we can't own it yeah. or do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, that's a kind of positive, I don't know if violence is the right word. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of action could include violence as you describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. in a positive sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I want to see that book too. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm
4: working on it now.
3: Yeah, good. I'm <laughs> sorry. So I sidetracked you from, from finishing with, uh, so after you own it, what do hmm. you do?
4: You own it, you experience it, right? So we're Mm -hmm. filling into it. And then once you get enough of that, you know, Uh another part of the agency, right, comes up when we let it go. Well, when you say let it go, Mm -hmm.
3: what are you letting go and what are you keeping? Mm
4: -hmm. Well, I'm letting go of the fixation, right, of because I've owned it, I've experienced it. So I'm really into it, right? I'm I'm moving through it. Uh And then at some point, we just kind of have to, like, let that go and come back to this experience of space in the mind. So you let it go, and then you move into the last piece, which is let it float, right? Which I, that's, like, my favorite part, actually. (laughs) Um, but, But, like, when I let something go, I want to also really have this energy of letting it just float in my mind.
3: So, if what you're naming and mm-hmm. owning is, say, uh, systemic bias or mm-hmm. racial injustice, mm-hmm. when you let it go, mm-hmm.
4: you,
3: you don't let go of the concern about you, it.
4: You don't let go of the concern, right? You need the space to get a perspective, right? Because you yeah. experience it. That's one perspective. You're in it. But, like, it's hard to do something. like uh-huh. right? That experience, uh-huh. oh, if you're experiencing something like bias, uh-huh. you're going to also experience the guilt. And for most folks, being really in the guilt, it feels really hard to work through. But we still have to feel it. And so when I advise letting it go, then you're able to get some space and say, okay, I felt that okay, now uh, what else? Like, what do I do now?
3: Now what do I do? Yeah, there's, there's a, a maxim in systems theory that mm-hmm. seems to apply somewhat, which is that the entity that can take in information fully, mm-hmm. understand it most deeply, and respond most uh, agilely is basically the winner. <laughs> you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the best way okay. to be. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that's is what kind of what you mean by let it go. Mm-hmm. Let go the part of your viewing it that's distorted, mm-hmm. that's overly fixated, as you said, mm-hmm. but don't give it up. Yeah. yeah. You still want to act, but you want to act cleanly. You want to act freely, I guess is what
4: you're saying. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the floating part is, is just letting it be there. Yeah. You know, it's uh-huh. there. It's floating in the mind, but I'm not attached to it. I see uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. You know, I'm still in relationship to it, but I can still, I still have That's the right. space to do things.
3: You talk about anger and trauma and having trauma triggered, and then you give a practice for that, which mm-hmm. is a meditation on anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of stunning. How can you meditate on anger in a positive way?
4: One of my beliefs is that if you're going to do really hard work, that you need support. And I think so many so many meditation methods is really about, okay, we're going to do this. Like, we're going to lean into it. We're going to feel it. And, yeah, some people can do that. You know, most people can't. And so I developed this this practice of the seven homecomings. Right, which is a benefactor yes. practice, basically, yes. you know, and I studied benefactor practice with, um, John McCransky, Lemon John McCransky, oh, yeah. right. years ago. He was my first benefactor teacher, right? And, and I've always held benefactor practice to be really important. So benefactor yes. practice is a loving kindness practice or a meta practice where we imagine receiving love or care or compassion. Right. From an imagined benefactor, someone, you know, in our life or someone we've ever had a positive contact with. But, you know, but it's cultivating that energy and learning to deeply accept it to, so, as I say, drink it in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, so that's benefactor practice regular, you know, basic meta practices going through phrases and yeah. trying to generate that, that experience of kindness for ourselves. Um, so, so in the seven homecomings, it's just an, more of an advanced benefactor practice where I ask folks to to bring in all these categories of of benefactors, teachers, guides, communities, ancestors, lineage. I also evoke the earth. I evoke silence. Um, I also evoke um, the energy, the power mm-hmm. of dharma, which I call wisdom texts. Uh-huh. You know. Uh-huh. Um So I ask people to bring all of that into the space and to learn to like really absorb the energy of kindness, you know, and having that as a support, then I say, okay, now let's lean into this anger, you know, oh. it's almost as if like someone's holding you as you're leaning over
3: yeah, like true.
4: the edge, you know, uh-huh. and so you feel so much more supported doing that.
3: So you're, you're, you're experiencing your anger from a safe place.
4: It's, yeah. Yeah. A relatively safe place. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, it's interesting to me that you include earth. Yeah. Is, you said that was part of your indigenous yeah. ancestry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do people get from earth?
4: Yeah. Groundedness uh-huh. really. Um, you know, often I noticed in my practice that when I felt really unsettled, I wanted to go lie down. <laughs> on the earth, on the floor. Uh, oh. Yeah. You know, I wanted something grounding uh-huh. and solid. And I was like, oh, uh-huh. that's the earth. The earth uh-huh. is always holding us. But uh-huh. we forget that.
3: So in what sense can we love anger?
4: Yeah. Well, in, in the sense that when I talk about love, I talk about acceptance. And so when I love my anger, I'm saying, yeah, you're here. Uh-huh. Like you're definitely I've... showing up. You know, and the only way that I can be in a relationship with you if I let you be here, you know, and that's going to cut through this layer of aversion, you know, it's either going to be aversion or reactivity that I want to cut through with love. I don't want to overreact or react at all, but nor do wow. I want to push you away. I want to show up to let you be here, you know, and that's what love is for me in terms of anger.
3: Lama Rod, I want to thank you so much for joining us on our
4: podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful.
3: What Lama Rod is saying reminds me of a kind of big wake up I had in my teenage years when I met a Nigerian anthropologist, John Ogbu would come to my hometown in the Central Valley of California to study the caste system in my town. I had been absolutely, utterly oblivious to the fact that there was what amounted to an American caste system. And since then, um, there's been a brilliant book written about caste in America, it became a bestseller. But back then, it, it, it was a radical idea. And he was really talking about systemic violence systemic oppression. The fact that in my town, as across most of America, particular groups were held down by the system. They couldn't get loans, they couldn't get mortgages, they couldn't keep jobs. They were marginalized economically and people were biased against them. There was prejudice, sometimes openly expressed, sometimes implicitly expressed. The schools they went to were considered less um, Uh, good compared to the schools that people of privilege went to, uh, and I have to say including me, but what the key point was that systemic violence is, I think, largely invisible except to the victims of that violence, and that it's only been recently when acts of that systemic violence have been spread on the internet that people in general have become incensed by
0: it. There's so much in what you just said. An important thing that I wanna mention again, just to highlight is that the violence and oppression inherent in a political or a social system. There's always gonna be a power elite or somebody who has more access to power. It's about privilege, what you were just saying, and that there's an aspect of privilege that is blind spots. That's really important to understand. Privilege isn't just the good things that happen to people in power or to the power elite. You know, it's, it's not just the way that the, the system is weighted towards somebody. Privilege is also the ability to not pay attention. It's such a beautiful example that you gave, Dan, uh, of the school that you went to. You didn't even understand what was happening because you didn't have to look at it. And there's so much that we don't have to look at in this world that Uh, if we did look at it, if we did know about it, we might want to do something about it. We might feel really differently. And so that piece of privilege that you were talking about, I think, is really key to call out explicitly because that's just one thing that you were made aware of. But the thing about blind spots is that we don't see them. And that's one of the deep values of communication of talking to other humans from different backgrounds and different perspectives, you know. This is why it's important to have more than one voice in the room, why, why it's important that uh, everybody who's impacted by a decision has a voice or, or can be heard in, in that decision making process. Mm-hmm. In this last discussion, Dan and I talked about our privilege a lot. We're privileged in a lot of ways. Access to healthy food, healthcare and education. I grew up in a town where I felt safe with my peers and safe with the police. My family and I had a safe place to be during the COVID-19 lockdown. All of these are areas in my life for which I am deeply grateful. And they are also areas of privilege for me. Each of them has made it easier to succeed, and without any one of them, life is a struggle. What we didn't talk about directly, though, was another privilege that Dan and I share. We are both white. Racial dynamics are deep in society and deep in our psyche, and can be difficult to talk about. But it's important to acknowledge and name it directly so that we can address it properly. In the United States, white privilege undergirds all the basic human necessities that I mentioned as privileges. Access to decent food, health care, education, and even just feeling safe. If you are white in the U.S., you are simply more likely to have these things. The important thing is that it's not a coincidence And it's not that whole groups have inherent characteristics that keep them from success and well-being. Legal and financial systems produce the outcome they were designed to, and when a group disproportionately benefits from a system, and another group suffers disproportionately, that system is designed to produce inequity. We live in a country where white people are overwhelmingly more likely than black indigenous people of color to gain and amass financial wealth and less likely to be arrested for committing the same crimes. Our systems are weighted both for the success of white people and weighted to undermine the success of most people of color. This is white privilege. A deep bow of gratitude to Shayna and Lauren, the guests in the next segment, for pointing out this blind spot in the discussion between Dan and me. In Act 2, we take another look at the relationship between love and rage, this time through a segment we call Connections, where we bring two people together to have a conversation on our theme. EI correspondent and all-around badass Elizabeth Solomon reports.
5: One of the criticisms of emotional intelligence has been that it seeks to ignore anger. Competencies like positive outlook or emotional balance have led to an assumption that the goal of EI is to be nice or kind, and that in order to do this, we have to be contained or somewhat emotionally repressed. But this isn't really what emotional intelligence is about. It's much more about agency about having the self-awareness to understand what we are feeling, why we are feeling it, and then choose, very intentionally, how we want to respond. And the response part is key. It's not about anger or no anger. It's about claiming our anger, understanding the source of our rage, understanding where it lives in our body and what our relationship to it actually is. And then making a conscious choice as to how we want to utilize it. It's the difference between letting it consume us and using it as a constructive tool. In our next act, Shayna Hammond and Lauren Henley sit down to discuss anger, leadership, race, equity, and power. Shayna is a certified emotional intelligence coach and the CEO of Lead for Liberation, formerly known as Teach to Lead. Lead for Liberation is a leadership development organization dedicated to supporting leaders in leading through the lens of racial equity. She also runs Indigo Women, a nine-week professional development journey designed for Black women executives and entrepreneurial leaders. Lauren is a consciousness coach, lead facilitator for The Conscious Racist, and since this recording has become the program director at Lead for Liberation. If you want to learn more about Shayna and Lauren, please see our episode notes for their full bios. Shayna is currently recruiting participants for her next cohort of Indigo Women. If you're interested, you'll want to apply now.
6: My name is Lauren Hinley, and I consider myself a freedom coach, and I live in Chicago, Illinois.
2: My name is Shayna Renee Hammond. I'm a leadership and life coach.
6: I just noticed, Shane, as I sit here and look at you, I just have so much gratitude and appreciation for, one, this experience with you, but also just having you in my world. And I feel like knowing you is a real affirmation to me that the universe is for me and with me and ahead of me. So I just want to express so much gratitude to be with you today.
2: I received that, thank you. And I have so much gratitude for you. I mean, we knew each other years and years and years ago in another context, and it's been so beautiful to get to know you now. I think both of us have been through um, a spiritual growth journey, um, and to see each other and kind of meet again um, now and see our work so beautifully complement each other has been amazing. And so I'm so, so grateful for you, so grateful for you saying yes to your work that you've been doing forever and now doing more explicitly and boldly and loudly. Um, it's just really good to be in, in community with you. Feels like very, very kindred.
6: Thank you. I have chills in my body. So I'd love to just start the conversation by asking you a question if you're available. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you know, given like you just have this longevity and depth in the field of emotional intelligence, also racial equity and leadership, like all of those realms are zones of genius for you. And I really want to understand better how is constructive anger played a role in all three of those areas.
2: Constructive anger. So it's so interesting because I think anger in of itself is probably what um, birthed some of this work, especially when it comes to racial equity work. Like we all know, you know, violence and anger is the language of the unheard. And so sometimes, you know, it has taken a reaction in order for us to go back to the beginning and realize how we got here in the first place. Um, and so when I think about constructive anger, especially with Black women in leadership, I'm feeling this pressure of suppressing anger and feeling really... Um, you know, nervous about being kind of uh, described as the angry Black woman and anger always kind of having a negative connotation to it. Um, and I saw ways in which that cut off their, their power and how it cut off my own. Um, and when I was going through my own spiritual journey and growth, part of that was owning all sides of myself, owning the justified anger, owning the sadness, owning all of the emotions. And it's actually in that ownership where I found myself again and I found my power. Um, And action, I mean, mean, excuse me, anger in of itself is the emotion of action. It's the emotion that tells us what to do. It's It's the emotion that wakes us up. We're all waking up right now. We're all being invited to wake up and raise our consciousness. And when I think about the work that I do, when you peel back all the layers, it's about raising consciousness. And part of that is being conscious of your anger as a Black woman, as a white woman, as a white man. Um, I think for far too long, we have suppressed anger. We have run away from it, um, when really there's so much to be learned from it. Um, and even in the expression of emotional intelligence, sometimes, you know, it's, it's been in the past kind of spoken to in terms of managing anger or disarming it, when really we need to lean into it. We need to express it. We need to experience it and then translate it and find what that translation power is of ours. For me, it's coaching, right? It's teaching. Um, And what I've come to also understand about anger, you know, it's really that, it's that piece of passion. I mean, anger and love is passion. So without that anger, you really don't have a lot of the advancements that we've seen, a lot of the, you know, amazing ideas um, and organizations have been born out of justified anger. And so, you know, when I think about the cross-section of racial equity, of emotional intelligence, of education, of leadership, it's really how do you tap into that constructive anger? How do you engage, instead of disarming conflicts, how do you engage in a healthy way in such that people can express it So that you can get to real change, systemic change that we're all looking for, and I think that it's just time for us, and we're being invited to really learn from that anger um, a little bit more instead of being scared of it.
6: Yeah, I just noticed like a big wave of energy in my body when I listened to you, and I just want to, you know, kind of highlight some of the things I heard you say. And you know, you, I heard you say that anger is the language of the unheard. That anger is. a pathway to action and passion um, it's a pathway to power and that in order for us to raise consciousness we have to integrate all emotions and we can't mm-hmm. say oh sadness is okay and fear is okay but anger is not okay and then specifically in the experience of black women the pattern that you were noticing of black women like holding their anger down or protecting you know, other people to not fully speak up and how that has really come forward. And then it sounds like it's really inspired you to step forward into your power.
2: Yes, right? very much so, very much so. And it's, and it's interesting, it sounds counterintuitive, but I actually experience more joy. Um, and I think it's because I'm more authentic. You know, I, I've given myself permission to say, yes, that actually is what I'm feeling. Um, and then it's helped me get to know myself in a different way. Um, you know, I've recently discovered yoga and other ways to just express it. And, and I dance a lot as well and just kind of move it through my body such that I can stand up and, and say whatever, whatever it is I need to say in a way that's both true to myself and in a way that can move the room and and potentially move organizations. And so, um, I I just am so glad that more and more people are kind of waking up to that. Um, And (laughs) what it's also going to take is not just kind of those who have kind of been on the receiving end of immense pressure and oppression, To to kind of take that step forward, but everyone, especially those in white dominant communities, white folks need to also be okay, right, with their anger. And so I'd love to hear from you with the work that you've been doing for so long um, and now really deliberately um, stepping in as a freedom coach, working in community with other white people. What does constructive anger mean when it comes to being an ally, when it comes to being a white person who says, you know what? enough is enough. I'm, I'm here to do my work. I'm here to wake up. Um, I'm here to take ownership of what's mine and move. And so I'm curious, you know, what have you learned along the way as you're coaching and working when it comes to constructive anger and the work that white folks need to do? Yeah, I'd love to answer
6: that. So, The the few things come to mind. One is that a good number of my clients who come to me to specifically work on their white fragility are white women. I mean, the majority, that's just a data point. So Mm -hmm. a pattern that I see regularly and what they're coming towards is like, they're in a fear and a victimization pattern of like, I want to speak up and I see that these things are wrong and I don't want to... rock the boat or i'm scared of the impact that that's going to have on other people or my Mm -hmm. relationships and so in that way they're choosing other people's comfort under over their own Mm -hmm. i think it's also a way that like patriarchal consciousness like meets you know racial consciousness in terms of the ways that as women we have made it wrong to be angry in general to not Mm -hmm. disrupt the status quo Mm -hmm. and so for me and even in my own practice it's about being an integrity with myself, if something feels wrong to me in my body, if something feels off, then I'm going to choose to speak what's true for me over the discomfort of the other person. And that can be from anger sometimes, and it can even be a little bit messy. And so Mm -hmm. I noticed that um, for me and for Mm -hmm. other people that I coach, we have to take the step to learn a new muscle and first say something, you know, and then reflect on it, you know, maybe next time I'll say it a different way or whatever. But to me, the first step is just accepting yourself for where you are and what you need to say and allowing that anger. Like you said, I think it's a pathway to power. I think if we're really going to make a difference and disrupt this, um, racial, this system that is so deep, Mm -hmm. anger is like the only way.
2: Wow. So much of that hits in so many different ways. And something that was really interesting that you said um, was this notion of white women um, feeling not wanting to make other people feel uncomfortable. And that struck me because so many people of color, especially in the workplace, have to spend so much energy um, making sure that they don't make white women and white men uncomfortable. Um, So I'm just curious if you can kind of peel back those layers. We have, you know, it's just so interesting that so much of what's happening is this kind of tiptoeing around comfort. Um, Can you kind of peel back the layers? What has that been like for your clients?
6: Well, one, I think it's really interesting to ask the question, like, who defined comfort and who are we Mm -hmm. catering to, right? right? And that is a really big question. Um, And those social norms and looking at that, but, you know, it has been A a story that I have is that white women one way that we have gotten attention in the patriarchy is through victimization and white women's tears Mm. That you know, we at some point in our own attempt to survive like made an internalized awareness like if I get angry and I challenge then I get shut down But if I cry, then I get attention. But we also know that throughout history, white women's tears have been used to repress and even cause violence against Mm -hmm. the black community. Mm -hmm. So it's like so intricate to me that this dance is happening, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Where, like women, ha- women who want to be allies is who I'm really speaking specifically to. Women who mm-hmm. want to be allies are having to truly look at how they've used their tears and their apathy and their powerlessness to get their own way mm-hmm. to get the things that they needed to mm-hmm. to kind of basically manipulate situations without disrupting those situations. Right. And so to be a white ally as a woman, I think is actually saying like, I'm not going to play that game anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm going to step into my truth and my power, and I'm going to accept the consequences or whatever impact it has on those around me.
2: Yeah. And I'm just, you know, grateful for more and more spaces like the ones you're offering popping up for specifically white people, white women, white men to do this work. I get the question a lot. It's something um, after eight years of teaching um, and leading and holding space for different organizations around the world, one of the biggest things that um, I've learned along the way, my team has learned along the way, is that this work of raising consciousness specifically through the lens of racial equity really requires it to be done in affinity um with other people who culturally identify um closely to you because to your point so much of sometimes we i would watch in interracial um groups i would watch um you know some white women in particular kind of come into their own have awarenesses have um different breakthroughs um, And of course, tears and different things would happen um, that would then in turn unintentionally harm the people of color in the room. Um, And oftentimes it was their work that got centered. um, And then the work of really healing internalized racism, internalized patriarchy, um, was put to the side. Um, And so something I've just learned is that so much of this healing and work really does need to be done um, much of it, not all of it, but much of it um, in affinity, even, you know, both the interpersonal as well as some of the systemic um, pieces. So glad you're holding that space. Um, we're continuing to hold more spaces like that. Um, so glad you're doing that with us at Teach to Lead. Could not be more excited about that. Um, and it also leads me to um, another wondering. Um, And something we often get, I get asked, sometimes my teammates get asked, which is this idea of allyship and what it really means to be an ally um, and, you know, who gets to say, you know, whether you are or whether you are not, um, and how so much of the harm being done to um, lots of people on the margins has been around fragility um, and has been kind of held up through white fragility. And so... I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, what your work specifically does around white fragility and and what kind of, and how you see that work having an impact systemically. Great.
6: Well, I totally agree with you. When I was working in spaces that weren't affinity based, like the emotional labor on people of color in that space was just giant and you know, it really wasn't a progressive conversation because you have people of color who are at a high level of awareness because they've lived this at their whole life and they're ready to talk about something that's way up here. And then you have some people that are just entering the conversation for the first time mm-hmm. and processing a lot of things. So that's really what led me to start moving in the direction. And when White Fragility came out, it was just such a stamp to me, the way that she outlines the patterns that we see in Mm -hmm. in the way the defensiveness and powerlessness comes up when we talk to white people about race, it's like amazing. It's like (laughs) that it's so predictable. And so for me, um, the white affinity space and the work around white fragility is first about exactly what you're speaking to is about starting with consciousness, you know? In early in my career I was so much focused on action around justice and of course I still believe in action but I realized that if you go into action with a consciousness that's highly colonized that's highly white supremacist you're actually just going to recreate the systems that you even came to change. Mm-hmm. And so what I saw when I started doing these white affinity spaces was one people being really radically honest about the racist thoughts that they were having, you know, racist family members things that would be they felt ashamed to share. But as we know, in consciousness, everything has to be um, out in the open to work with it, right? And yeah. the last, the other piece was like really coming back into their bodies. Whiteness is such an intellectual game is the way that I would put it. It's like mm-hmm. You know, perfectionism. Even, even in the certain, in the current context where people want to wake up around this, it's more like I want to get an A in racism. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go read all the books and all the podcasts, and I'm not downing that but if you don't physically shift to an embodiment practice where you're breaking down how oppression and colonization lives in your body how if you can't be embodied with a person of color and truly feel them and feel their experience then i don't think that we're actually going to expand i think it's likely we're just going to repeat the same patterns and so just to summarize like that's what the white affinity space it says we come together with an intention and agreement to wake up our consciousness around the ways that we've been in denial, about the ways that we've been fragile, about the ways that we've been racist, about the ways that we've been white, you know, uh, been a part of white supremacy. And that is no easy task. And like, white people can choose from privilege to skip over that conversation. It's a choice for them to engage in that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that you mentioned healing. Um, We all need to heal. And, you know, just why I am so passionate, especially about centering Black women. And, you know, you mentioned the healing that's necessary for white women um, and just kind of the disjointedness. Um, We experience as Black women, as Black people, other people who've been marginalized in different ways. Um, You know, we ourselves have been um, fractured. Um, And it's, you know, and it's a time for, you know, really coming back to that integrated self and, um, and which is why it's so important for us to be able to have a safe container where we can do that, where we can reintegrate those pieces of ourselves that either knowingly or unknowingly we left behind um, in pursuit of a definition maybe of success that was given to us um, through social conditioning, maybe through our parents, um, through white supremacy, et cetera. Um, And, you know, that's really what this work is about. It's about calling in healing. Um, It's so interesting what you said. um, We're both also educators. And um, when you were talking, I went back to a conference I went to years ago where the grounding question was something around you know, in education, um, what's the next innovation or something? Mm. And I spoke without thinking just right up. I said, healing, really loudly. And there were a couple people who nodded, but most people were like, healing, like that has nothing to do with ed tech. How do you scale healing? What does that even look like? Um, Then here we are in this interesting place where we are in between paradigms and a new paradigm is still emerging. And so many people are being called now to heal. And um, I do believe it happens in two ways. It happens, you know, personally, um, interpersonally, uh, you know, you kind of doing your own work. And, you know, there's a systemic healing as well that's being called in around systems and redistributing power. Um, And so when I also think about healing, I think, you know, I think about our folks doing that work um, constantly, we've been doing that work, and we're now learning how to do it more expansively. The question always is, right? Like, but what does this look like when it comes to institutions and systems, um, and and really truly redistributing power? And how how are we going to actually call people in or take power, right? Because what really needs to happen. Um, systemically, we have to see some shifting of those, making sure the, the people that we're serving are the ones who, are, ha- who have the decision-making power, who are making decisions, who, who are you know, also um, influencing other people. And so I'm, I also just think about that conversation quite a bit. It's so interesting when you said that it, it brought it back up, like how do you scale healing? Um, and what does that look like on a grand scale? Um, when you think about healing as innovation in both education, um, and in other institutions as well, um, what comes up for you? Yeah,
6: I I have, again, chills all over my body. A really similar experience of like seeing the healing in education and the necessity for that. Um, Mm -hmm. I see it, I, what it comes up is I see it in circles. I see it as from the top down and the bottom up, like leadership teams committing to becoming relational. I feel like that in this innovation looks like learning to be human. And like as an individual, I have gone through this like transformational journey about learning how to really be human, to be in my body, to be in my feelings, and then to be with other people. And the systems and structures are almost as if, has almost treated us as humans as if we're robots. Right. We're not really expected to eat or sleep very much or see our families or, you know, and I think even in the current pandemic and all the changes that have been happening, people are really waking up to how they haven't been living very human. And so now, one, I'm called to be a human. And then the question that's going to break down the systems is what does it look like to be human in an organization? What does it look like to prioritize humanity in an organization? And if we're an all-white organization and we're looking around and saying, why isn't this place more diverse? Like, what commitment are we going to make to our own healing and our own conscious awakening into our bodies so that if we bring in people of color, we bring in other humans, other types of humans into our organization, that it's a safe and loving place where they can be empowered and thrive. Um, so all of that comes up around healing. And at the end of the day, to me, it's about prioritizing people and relationships.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, it's interesting. I was, um, I was going through a strategic planning process, and we were trying to basically describe, you know, who we are and what we do. And we kept coming back to human. It's a humanistic approach to leadership development, and it's one and the same Um, and as a, you know, a leader, if you're charged with, you know, leading an organization, leading a community, leading, um, a movement, how important it is to first honor your own humanity, um, so that other people can honor theirs. And if the leaders don't, you know, honor their humanity, um, then it's really, really hard for others. Um, another interesting kind of trend that I've noticed over the years Um, working with so many different organizations is this notion of um, at times the organization's consciousness, um, the staff members being higher and more kind of ready for this human approach than sometimes their senior leadership, their Mm. senior leadership team. Um, And I, you know, it it makes me wonder, you know, why is that? Why am I seeing that trend um, of kind of staff members who are sometimes many times more proximate to maybe the the clients they're serving um, or students they're serving, you know, really ready to shake things up, switch things around, move systems. And I see much more fear um, oftentimes when I get to senior leadership teams and wanting to kind of um, try something new. And and really, you know, and sometimes it gets kind of boiled down to this um, false tension of, human meaning um lowering expectations or not having as grand of outcomes right if you will less efficient (laughs) exactly (laughs) less efficient um when really have we really been efficient um usually we spend so much time cleaning up uh and backpedaling because the decisions that we rushed to make were not the best ones They, they were not really truly in service of the people we said we were serving um they were more so in service maybe of fear And so um, I don't know. I just I think about that a lot. I encounter that a lot. Um, And what I'm excited about, though, is as we continue to shift to work more in affinity with our clients, um, I am starting to see. And hopefully, eight years later, I can say, you know, I see even more that kind of gap closing, and I see more leadership teams stepping up and saying, you know what, this is where we need to go, Um, and they they prioritize, you know, their work as well. Um, and, and can move with more conviction and more um, confidence.
6: Well, the thing that I think about when you say that is like kind of what we've seen a lot in the current climate and the way that we have seen policy uh, changes at the state level and the idea that like when from the bottom up, when we collectively agree and put pressure on leadership teams, when clients ask more of the people that they are paying to work with, Like the leadership team is forced to readjust and change. And sometimes those motivations are capital. They are political gain, but it's still pressure from the bottom up. And so I think that's what affinity spaces can really do for organizations is create alignment and consensus in a way that people can move forward collectively to ask for change in their organizations and disrupt the power structures that happen in a hierarchical organizational construct right where Mm -hmm. the people at the top hold so much power and that's really what we're trying to shift even as a country i would think is that no longer is the hierarchical construct going to really work it's not even going to allow us to survive we have to embrace more of a human-centered design construct where We bring in the people that we're serving to be a part of the design, where we're designing for the marginalized, and that's our priority, Mm -hmm. Um, assuming that everyone else will be served when we prioritize that. Mm -hmm. And then last, like letting it emerge because we haven't done it before. You know, this is a new way of being. And so a big part of white supremacy, I think, is like, I want to control the outcome. I want a clear strategy. Like I'm not willing to step into the unknown. And that Mm -hmm. I just don't actually know how any organization – will survive without stepping into the unknown in this new climate. Um, And it also, I wanted to kind of go back to this new focus that you've shifted from Teach to Lead to Shana Mm Renee. You know, that seems like it's been a very emergent process and it's been very based in like human-centered design and thinking about where you want to place power and influence. So I'd love to hear about your decision to um, focus exclusively on Black women in leadership?
2: Yes, this has been baking for many years. Um, I started noticing in my work some very stark trends with the Black women in leadership that I was working with. Um, Many of them were experiencing uh, burnout, um, were experiencing a lot of deep frustration, were also experiencing a lot of success too. Right. So many of them were getting unprecedented results for their organizations and their schools. Many of them um, from outward facing were soaring, um, but inwardly were exhausted, um, had to sacrifice, um, you know, personal relationships, sacrificing their own self-care and and couldn't really say that they were thriving. And I could definitely, definitely uh, relate and was there many times um, before. And something that I learned through my own journey was that, and I heard this, but I didn't, wasn't ready to embody it, but I had heard from a spiritual teacher that once you center self-care, everything else falls into place. Mm. And that's easier said than done, right? Um, But having gone through it myself and coaching so many amazing Black women in leadership through that process, um, I thought to myself and just spirit also was just kind of guided me over and over and just speaking more loudly about how this is your work. This is also filling you up. Um, It was the work that was when I left a coaching session or I left a a large session, I felt um, amazing. I felt um, integrated. I felt empowered. I felt um, just more like myself and more like my gifts were really, really um, having a deep impact. It needed its own container because of how important it is. Black women for generations have been responsible for systemic, global, societal, communal, and familial change and transformation forever, forever. Um, At the same time, they also have been on the receiving end of excruciating patriarchal, and racial oppression for generations. And I'm talking cis women, queer women, trans women, all, right, have been in the margins for a very long time, while also leading so many different tra- um, changes. And especially in a time like now, you know, we, we see a lot of people asking for Black women to come and, and serve and help and lead, and um, because we've done that so much. But there are very few people saying, but how are you? And what are you doing while you lead? Mm. Um, and so it was really important um, and I could feel it like all in my body to have you know its own container, and there are all other amazing black women answering having the same call and answering to it and providing these spaces for black women to go and just be and to and to center self care and learn what that even means to center self care to give yourself permission to say. I am the most important person in my life, in this organization, et cetera, and I'm going to spend time figuring out what it means for me to set the necessary boundaries that I love myself and love you at the same time um, so that, you know, we can stay at it and, and continue to be our amazing selves at home and, and in the workplace and in our businesses and in our families and communities and in the movement. Um, we need our own space and there's nothing that has ever brought me more joy other than of course being a a mama to Judah and Joelle, um, Mm -hmm. but brought me more joy and excitement than to be able to create those spaces and containers and methods that help bring black women back to themselves and who they are. Because something we've all learned (laughs) is that, um, we all we got (laughs) and it's us that's really going to take care of us. Um, And really know how to take care of us. And so I'm just super excited for that to be its own container. Um, We're about to launch Indigo Women, a group coaching experience where 20 women are going to come together to hold space for one another. um, To do just that, to center self-care and really understand what it means to reintegrate all sides of ourselves mentally, physically, spiritually, such that we can do the work, whatever our work is, whatever our purpose is, in a way that's even more powerful, that's more sustainable, that brings us joy along the way, that doesn't cut off our power, um, so that we can take up all the space that we ourselves need to take up for ourselves, and you know what the world also um, needs as well. And so, Just really excited to do that, Um, excited to share what I've learned, excited for the other women to come share what they learned because something I know is when we get together, it takes on its own form. Um, This work is way bigger than me. Um, It's just, you know, I'm just a vessel and there are so many other vessels um, that I can't wait to meet, can't wait to hold space for and see what happens
6: yeah my energy's so up and i you know i follow this organization called the nat ministry on instagram and she speaks so directly to reparations as rest yes. and why people stepping up into the front lines and carrying the weight of this movement so that because there's a space where People of color and specifically black women need space to just heal and grieve. And that, that racism is a trauma, right? It's a trauma mm-hmm. to the body. It's a generational trauma. Um, and so I just love the idea of specifically creating spaces where that healing can happen. And I'm curious, like from your perspective, like if you could have it in a perfect world, like what would allyship, what would it look like for white folks to stand for that, to stand for more of that and to
2: really be allies
6: to black women?
2: I think about a particular client who was so frustrated um, because, you know, she's navigating what so many of us are navigating when it comes to white supremacy and white supremacy culture. Um, the way it was kind of manifesting for her was in not speaking up as much about um, a particular kind of dilemma that was at, at hand. Can't kind of get into the specifics, but she couldn't, she wasn't speaking all of her truth. She was spending a lot of time and energy packaging what she had to say um, and was getting feedback that she was, that she had come off as unapproachable. Um, that she had um, that was hard to kind of read her and so after kind of in the coaching session her really owning her anger um, we talked about what it means to experience and express it and we actually we went to joy and we went back to what what brings her joy and she had forgotten that she loves to write poetry And for her, so part of her hard work was to write poetry just for five to 10 minutes each day. Um, And what she realized was it was her container. That was her way of expressing it and the way that worked for her. Um, And then when we came back to that dilemma, she talked about how she came back to that person and spoke very assertively um, and even was able to inject a little bit of humor into the conversation, but very authentically explain exactly what was going on and what needed to happen and exactly what she intended to happen happen. It's about finding out what your way is for expressing it, for feeling it. It isn't always you know, telling the person who you're angry at. A lot of times it's finding out exactly how you need to process it for yourself and express it for yourself. Um, and then, you know, have maybe a conversation with someone um, about whatever it was that triggered that anger in the first place. Um, but it's certainly not suppressing. It, it's, it's, it's allowing it to come out in a creative way, sitting with it and, ask, and literally asking, like, what is trying to emerge from me? Like, what is this anger telling me to do? Um, I'm supposed to act. I'm supposed to do something. Um, It might mean leave a job. It might mean have this conversation. It might mean a whole lot of things. And sometimes we're just afraid of what it might mean. But we at least have to know the information. Otherwise, we're cutting off our power.
6: Yeah, I really couldn't agree with you more. I mean, to me, the whole the whole issue is that we cap anger and creative energy so much in our culture that when it does, does finally come out it comes out in these explosions and that's why we have kind of culturally made anger wrong or bad but if we were accessing that power on a regular basis it wouldn't be about moving beyond anger it would just be about integrating anger it would be about being with my confidence my firmness Um, like for me to say to somebody like when you made that phrase I felt anger in my body and I felt fear and the story I make up is that you are not um, creating a safe space for me. Like that can be anger because the energy behind it says, stop, mm-hmm. that's enough. Mm-hmm. And so while I believe I agree with you, it can be a call to action. It can also be a, like, this is not serving me mm-hmm. and I'm going to stand for what's not serving me. And I think yep. that we you know, can have really unhealthy boundaries around like taking things over and over, like I was speaking before, like making other people comfortable over ourselves and then it gets to an explosive place. But I love how you also brought up the writing because, so much of who we are is like this creative energy this flow that I think both of us have really uniquely like stepped into and trusted and let these things in our lives unfold and so many of us become complicit and think that we're stuck in a job or stuck in a situation and or you know stuck in a leadership team and we don't have choices and we cap our creative energy and then that turns into just frustration and anger so when we're allowing that creative energy to flow and giving it access to your point emotions are all just kind of like tubes of energy in the body so if we block Mm -hmm. one we block all of them yeah so as soon as we clear those pipes like what's possible and the purpose that can come through us is I mean magnificent
3: I think that Shana's talking about the energy that anger gives you and the focus, but I I think she's really endorsing experiencing anger and then acting from it in a way that's focused, that's energized, that's deliberate, and that's effective.
0: When I hear Shana talk about anger and the way that it can be translated into action, I realize that it needs another ingredient. Anger itself is quite violent, uh, and a violent impulse. We need to listen to anger to understand the information that it's telling us. There's that energy that comes from it. But then if, if you're not rooted in empathy or your humanity, I guess in order to translate anger into positive action. I think it needs to be filtered through wise understanding or through some compassion.
3: I completely agree, Hanuman, with what you're saying. There's an amazing body of research by a man named Irvin Staub on the roots of evil. Staub was saved from the Nazis by Raoul Wallenberg. He was a young teenager in Hungary, and he was given a Swedish passport, a fake one, but it saved his life. And he made it his mission, he became a social psychologist, to study why evil emerges. And what he said was very much uh, like what Lauren is saying. He said, evil flourishes when bystanders stay silent. There's a need to speak up. There's a need to name what is wrong as it's going wrong. Lauren goes on to say that for women who have been taught that their role is to make everything nice and harmonious, speaking your anger is a good first step. Once you speak your anger, you think about what will get you where you wanna go because it's not just angry impulse. It takes something more.
0: Yeah, and she's saying, "Say something, and then reflect on it, and maybe next time I'll say it in a different way." So there seems to be this, this understanding that, and I feel this in myself, you know, around difficult conversations, uh, where there are social pressures, to just to say something can be a huge hurdle. She's saying that you don't want to disrupt the status quo and that it's in the service of someone else's comfort and i think also what's there is it's in service of our own comfort it's so that we don't disrupt the relationships and those relationships are have been born within this system that we're talking about this is one mechanism that a system of power can use to stay in power because if you, if you can constrict people's communication with their discomfort about it, then, they, then I guess the system just stays longer.
3: And anger can be a motivator to speak up. If you don't speak up, nothing changes. But in order to change it at all, you have to first speak up. You have to first name it. You have to first look at it.
0: Another piece of the fear of speaking up is the recognition that I have been in collusion unknowingly for my entire life until now, so there's a recognition when I notice some injustice or some inequality. If it feels like it is going to affect a social situation or my social world, I I can be aware that there's this um, there's this recognition in saying something that I think we uh, we as white people. Have a sadness and a like. We don't know how to uh, to talk about it in a way that we can like hold it, because we we have just like you're saying by not having said something until this point, we're part of the thing happening, and so in saying something, there's a recognition that that is true, and there's that's the heavy heavy to hold, and so I think that in itself even acts as an impediment uh, to, to people saying something. It's, a, it's, it's insidious and it's terrible. It's like uh, clever in this sick way, you know?
3: Basically, you're saying that fear, fear of upsetting the apple cart, of upsetting the people around us, upsetting the people in our family, in our business, in our community, It keeps us quiet, but by keeping quiet, we tacitly agree or seem to agree with whatever injustice is going on around us.
0: This next segment connects our conversation about constructive anger to our previous episode on ecological intelligence. It also offers a window into what constructive anger sounds like. What does constructive anger feel like? While you're listening to this piece, I invite you to immerse yourself in the feelings of it, along with the information. Constructive anger uses the power of this strong feeling and channels it to address the thing that makes us angry. Not in a willy-nilly, kind of lashing-out sort of way, but thoughtfully, with facts, with truth, with humanness, and with style. It can raise awareness. It can motivate others. It can take wise and effective action. Correspondent Gabby Acosta reports in Act 3.
7: Earlier this spring, I served as a judge for the Amplify Student Public Speaking competition at my alma mater, Smith College. When we heard the poem performed by Junior Asli Ali, my fellow judges and I were struck by the power and passion she has for the issue and its relevance to the urgent environmental and racial justice crises we're currently facing. I knew then that her piece would be perfect for today's episode. The following piece is both a personally meaningful and deeply researched exploration of the ways in which climate change disproportionately affects black indigenous people of color, BIPOC for short, particularly as a result of inequitable policy decisions. As part of her prize-winning submission, Usley shares the following. In this piece, I play with the growing desire for clean air during a pandemic. The corporate wasteful practices and incinerator institutions have infected our history and continue to contaminate our present, but they don't have to define our future. Intentionally placed pollution disproportionately affects communities of color throughout this nation and the world. In order to work towards a more just future for all, uncovering truths such as this one is essential. Unearthing the atrocities of the corporate world needs to be in the backdrop of a discussion-based forum. I hope you are as inspired by the following poem as I was. Without further ado,
1: here's Asli. Intentionally Placed Pollution by Asli Ali. The burning of waste is known as incineration. Facilities degrade waste through combustion. Destruction occurs in very targeted parts of the nation in places with high BIPOC representation. You see, there is a correlation in the concentration. Why are these sites not in white communities? Because of the side effects, specifically disease. Waste institutions emit toxins, such as dioxins, a class of deadly pollutants the Environmental Protection Agency makes it translucent. Pumping out these compounds into the atmosphere, dioxins infiltrate all who are near. Lungs and other tissues, do they adhere? Building up in the body and eliciting fear? Incineration puts these populations under duress acting as a catalyst for many severe health effects. The immune system undergoes an abundance of stress. I feel as though these ideas are beginning to coalesce. To those near the sites, there is no disclosure that there is no safe level of dioxin exposure. Hold on for a bit. Let me just let that sit. There is no safe level of dioxin exposure. How much more do these communities have to endure? Honolulu, Miami, Bridgeport. It's catastrophic that dioxins and other pollutants can enter bodies newly embryonic pass through the womb or breastfeeding, it's cataclysmic that babies of the global majority are predisposed to illnesses that are chronic. Substances no lung should have to bear, the kinds of chemicals that say, handle with care. But it's already in the air. Intentionally placed pollution. Invading our ill-equipped defenses, there is no doubt that incineration has many consequences. But an insult that I find incommensurable is that some states have the audacity to claim incinerators as renewable. It is the burning of trash. There is nothing clean about it. No human, animal, or piece of land is benefiting from it. So, why does it feel like it has been granted tenure? In what ways does it surpass the importance of nature? This? (laughs) This is more than a malfeasance. It is an oxymoronic pretense. Renewable trash burning just doesn't make sense. They are feeding us this nonsense. At our expense... Stealing the oxygen only to replace it with something hostile, like a fully loaded air to surface missile. Honing in on those with the highest vulnerability, while those with the monetary capability are safe. For now. I think it's easy to surmise that incineration spurs our collective demise, leaving scorched victims in its wake. I fear that it is foreshadowing our fate. It is true, incinerators are not alone in this felony. There have been consequences even in the attempts of remedy. In America's history, incinerator reduction was the catalyst for mass waste exportation by corporations, gathering up the waste they plan to rid, only to dump them in places, off the grid. Monopoly markets inundate borders of developing countries, perpetuating toxic colonialism on behalf of rich societies. Out of all these people, children of color are most at risk. This is an issue that calls to be fixed. Present and future generations will be wronged from this. Poisons that have been predetermined for them to experience. Imagine. Imagine what we have heard in tales of old, but now with changes that are unsettling, Bold. The idyllic facade in Hansel and Gretel, tainted to cold, dark, and unforgiving metal. The chirping of birds, squirrels, and wild life, silenced by pollution, ever sharpening its wielded knife. The witch in the magic house illusion represents our marketing-driven delusion, priority not on children, but on monetary desire. Where is the happy ending in a world consumed by fire? What have these children done? What have these children done? to deserve the toxic bullets from your deadly guns. By allowing the dreams of corporations to come to fruition, turning a blind eye gives them permission, enabling them to waste as they please into low-income communities. It is the path of least resistance, because (laughs) who really cares? If their future is not yours, no reason to despair. No, but I know you don't have the guts to call this dismissible. These lives expendable disposable no disposable is the word used to describe your mask the shield of which protects you from covid attacks lives that could be easily yours if we let pollution continuously enter our doors the goal of restoration could be achievable if we hold all those accountable Yes, corporate wasteful practices and incinerators do have seniority, but we know they don't fit in a world where clean air has become top priority. These are substances no one should have to bear. Listen, this is your air.
3: As we reviewed in detail in our last episode on ecological intelligence, the things we buy and use and discard and as she's making clear incinerate, contain chemicals that if we were in Europe, wouldn't be allowed to be used in products. Uh, They're grandfathered in, in the United States we don't have the precautionary principle as they do in Europe that says, if it might be toxic, don't use it. Here we say, use it until it's proven toxic and well, we won't actually look at the proof. And the fact that the incineration goes on in communities of color in poor neighborhoods not in white neighborhoods or privileged neighborhoods, is part of the structural injustice, the systemic bias. And by making it visible, by being angry about it and then doing something constructive with that anger, by way of notifying a a larger public, making people aware, is an act of service of the greater good.
0: This is such a great example of very justified anger. This is a situation that's happening all over the world where the people who are in power and creating waste because they have power are able to put that waste wherever they want and it's uh, in other people's backyards. So here's the anger that we have about this what I'm hearing here is a fantastic argument for empowerment of, uh, for, for more empowerment. And I mean that in, in all of the ways, uh, politically, e- economically, representation in the decision-making process. If all of the people who are affected when a decision is made have some input and are listened to when those decisions are being made, That's how we get situations that aren't harming massive parts of the population. We started seeing images in the 50s and 60s of actual human oppression in the U.S. And then the privileged people who didn't have to see those in day-to-day life started waking up. And it's the same situation. When you have people who begin to have voices and represent oppressed populations, then they can be heard. And if we don't have, it's, it's like self-awareness of a system, right? If there aren't mechanisms built into the system to hear itself, to actively listen, to actively gather that information, then it's a blind system. It's a system running blindly. And that's no way for any system to survive and people are hurt.
3: A system is uh, quite parallel to the human body. A healthy body has a way of noticing where it's in pain and doing something to alleviate that pain. And I think at the systems level, a society level, a national level, we need to have the same sensitivity. Who's in pain? What's causing the pain? What can we do to call out that pain and to remedy it somehow? And this poem is an eloquent cry from that pain. To take the analogy, so if a group is being bombarded by pollutants that are toxic, and that's clearly what's going on, then the system within which those people live has a huge blind spot. It's not hearing. It's not seeing. It's indifferent, in fact, to the pain that the system itself is inflicting.
0: If you're interested in learning more about constructive anger and the dalai lama's perspective you may be interested in reading a force for good the dalai lama's vision for our world for that and other material on emotional intelligence leadership and mindfulness go to our website keystepmedia that's keystepmedia.com slash shop Following this episode, we'll be switching to a summer schedule. We'll be publishing monthly single interview episodes to air on the third week of each month.
7: Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Rowan, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guests, Lama Rod Owens, Shana Renee Hammond, Lauren Henley, as well as our featured poet, Asli Ali. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Ariel, industrial zone and fairgrounds by bio unit theme music is by amber ojeda until next time be well
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.